At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Man of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. The following chapter is taken from a book called An Earnest Ministry, The Need of the Times, John Angel James, Earnestness in the Delivery of Sermons. Demosthenes, on being asked what was the first excellence of an orator, replied, Delivery, what was the second? Delivery. What was the third? Delivery. An impressive admonition this was, from such an authority to all preachers on the importance of that part of our subject, which we are now considering. After the death of that terrific man, Robert Murray McChain, there was found upon his desk an unopened note from one who had heard his last sermon to this effect. Pardon a stranger for addressing to you a few lines. I heard you preach last Sabbath evening and it pleased God to bless that sermon to my soul. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking it that struck me. I saw in you a beauty of holiness I never saw before. This is only one instance out of 10,000 in which the earnestness of a preacher's manner has secured that attention to his matter, which would not otherwise have been paid to it. The power of oratory has its foundations in the principles of our nature. It is not merely that ideas are conveyed by articulate language through the ear to the mind, but also that emotion is awakened by agreeable tones and pleasant modulations of the voice. Hence, the power of music. And what is human speech but music? No instrument has ever yet been constructed which can emit sounds so exquisitely moving as the human voice. Art is, in this respect, still below nature. True it is that we must go to the best voices for this superiority. But even in voices far below the best, there is an expression of the various passages which no instruments can equal. All nations, therefore, savage as well as civilized, have confessed the power of oratory, not only as a vehicle of instruction, but as a means of impression. It is vain to pretend that matter is or ought to be everything, and manner nothing. Truth, it may be said, ought to make its own way independently of the accompaniments of good elocution and graceful action. So it should, but these things are necessary in many cases to gain for it attention, but these things are necessary in many cases to gain for it attention and to secure that due consideration without which it can make no impression. Manner is, so to speak, the harbinger and herald of matter, summoning the faculties of the soul to give audience to the truth to be communicated, and holding the mind away from all other subjects which would divert the thoughts and prevent impression. It is not only the more illiterate and feeble-minded, not only the multitude who are led by feeling more than by reason, that are influenced by good oratory, 
but also men of the sturdiest intellect and of the most philosophic cast of mind. The soul of the sage as well as of the savage is formed with a susceptibility to the power and influence of music, and therefore to the power and influence of elocution. The importance of manner is consequently great, yes, far greater than either tutors or preachers have been disposed to admit. It is true that a good voice is necessary to good speaking, but not always to earnest speaking. Nature must do much to make a graceful and finished orator. But in the absence of this, a man of ardent mind, burning for the salvation of immortal souls, can, by an impressive earnestness of manner, be a more intense and effective speaker, notwithstanding naturally weak and unimpressive organs of speech than the possessor of the finest voice, if destitute of life and feeling in his delivery, just as an exquisite performer can bring better music out of a bad instrument than a bad musician can out of a good one. What may be done for supplying deficiencies and correcting faults in elocution, where the mind is resolutely bent upon accomplishing this, Demosthenes has taught us, and were a tenth part of the pains taken by us to obtain a powerful and effective method of pulpit address, which this prince of orders bestowed that he might become an effective speaker. Did we exert the same determination to overcome every obstacle, we too would be orators in our better cause. And if ambition or patriotism prompted Athenian and Roman orators to such studies and efforts for self-improvement, ought not love for souls and the zeal for God to prompt us to similar endeavors? Did they cultivate elocution with such unwearied perseverance to counteract the designs of Philip, or to defeat or destroy Catiline? And shall we not use it to destroy the works of the devil, and to advance the kingdom of the Redeemer? It is impossible not to observe how much the popularity of some preachers depends upon their manner, they do not say better or more striking things than other men, but they say them in a better and more striking manner. There is passion in their tones, power in their looks, and gracefulness in their gestures, which other men have never studied and therefore have never acquired. This is eminently the case with George Whitfield, the greatest of preachers. Much of the wondrous power of that extraordinary man lay in his voice and action. I have already given an extract from his sermons to illustrate his manner as regards style of composition, but who that never heard him, or indeed who that had, could illustrate his manner of delivery? Think of such paragraphs as those just quoted, delivered with an utterance appropriate to their nature, with an eye melting into tears, a voice tremulous with emotion, shrill yet full, now swelling into thunder, and then dying away again in soft whispers, one moment adoring God and the next piercing the sinner's conscience with an appeal that was the sharp arrows of the Almighty, at one time pouring out a stream of impassioned pity for the sinner, and the next moment a torrent of burning indignation against his sin, his very hands and every gesture all the while seconding his matchless elocution and seeming to help his laboring soul, all this being not the trickery of an artificial rhetoric to catch applause, but only the expression of his burning desire to produce conviction in his hearers, not the acting of a man striving after popularity, 
but the spontaneous gushing forth of a heart agonizing for the salvation of a mortal soul. What oratory must that have been which extorted from the skeptical and fastidious David Hume the confession that it was worth going twenty miles to hear, which interested the infidel Bolingbroke, and warmed even the cold and cautious Benjamin Franklin into enthusiasm in those discourses which roused the slumbering nation from the torpor of lukewarmness and breathed new life into its dying piety, you will find no profound thought, no subtle reasoning, no philosophical disquisition. For these never formed, and never can form, the staple of pulpit eloquence, but you will find thoughts that breathe and words that burn, and that, when delivered with the magic of his wondrous voice, spoke by the blessing of God, life and a thousands dead in trespasses and sins. The following account is from a letter of George Whitfield himself, quote, For many years, from one end of the large London fair to the other, booths of all kinds have been erected for performers, clowns, players, puppet shows, and such like, with a heart bleeding with compassion for many thousands led captive by the devil at his will on the day of the fair. At six o'clock in the morning I ventured to lift up a standard among them in the name of Jesus. Perhaps there were about ten thousand people in waiting, not for me but for Satan's instruments to amuse them. When I mounted my filled pulpit, almost all flocked immediately around it. I preached on these words, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. They gazed, they listened, they wept, and I believe that many felt themselves stung with deep conviction for their sins. All was hushed and solemn. Being thus encouraged, I ventured out again at noon. What a scene! The fields! The whole fields were ready for Beelzebub's harvest. All Satan's agents were in full motion. Drummers, trumpeters, singers, masters of puppet shows, exhibitors of wild beasts, players, and so forth, all busy in entertaining their respective audiences. I suppose there could not be less than twenty or thirty thousand people. My pulpit was fixed on the opposite side, and immediately, to their great dismay, they found the number of their attendants sadly lessened. Judging that, like Paul, I would now be called as a word a fight with beasts at Ephesus, I preached from these words, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You may easily guess that there was some noise among the craftsmen and that I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me while engaged in calling them from their favorite but lying vanities. My soul was indeed among lions, but the greatest part of my congregation, which was very large, seemed for a while to be turned into lambs. This encouraged me to give notice that I would preach again at six o'clock in the evening. I came. I saw, but what? Thousands and thousands more than before, if possible, still more deeply engaged in their unhappy diversions. One of Satan's choicest servants was performing, trumpeting on a large stage. But as soon as the people saw me in the pulpit, I thank all to a man left him and ran to me. For a while I was unable to lift up my voice like a trumpet, and many heard the joyful sound. This... Satan could not brook. 
The enemy's agents made a kind of roaring at some distance from our camp. At length they approached near, and one of the clowns, attended by others who complained that they had lost much money on account of my preaching, got up upon a man's shoulders, and advancing near the pulpit attempted to slash me with a long heavy whip several times, but always tumbled down with the violence of its motion. Soon afterwards they got a marching band with drums to pass through the congregation. I ordered that passage might be made for them. The ranks opened, while all marched through and then closed again. Finding these efforts to fail, a large group assembled together, and having gotten a large pole with their flag, advanced towards us with steady and formidable steps, till it came very near the skirts of our hearing, praying, and almost undaunted congregation. I prayed to the captain of our salvation for present support and deliverance. He heard and answered, for just as they approached us with fearful looks, I know not why, they quarreled among themselves, threw down their flag, and went their way, leaving, however, many of their company behind, who before we were done were brought over to join the besieged party. I think I continued in praying, preaching, and singing, for the noise was too great at times to preach for about three hours. We then retired to the tabernacle with pockets full of more than a thousand notes from people brought under concern for their souls, and read them amid the praises and spiritual acclamations of thousands who joined with the holy angels in rejoicing that in such an unexpected, unlikely place and manner so many sinners were snatched out of the very jaws of the devil." End quote. I venture to pronounce this the greatest achievement of elocution which the history of the world presents, next to the splendid triumph of the Apostle Peter's sermon over the murderers of Christ on the day of Pentecost. Who that considers the spot on which George Whitfield then stood, the scenes by which he was surrounded, the discordant noises of the motley crew which rung in his ears and the ears of his audience, who, in short, that recollects what the wild uproar and the hurly-burly of a popular London fair is, must not stand astonished. First, at the courage of the man who could erect his pulpit and preach a sermon in such a scene, and then still more at the marvelous success of his effort in the conversion of hundreds of souls by that one discourse. What, I ask, was the effect on the Athenians of the orations of Demosthenes and rousing them against Philip of Macedon, compared with this. The illustrious Greek had on his side every advantage which the scenery and the historic associations connected with it, and the prepared mind of his audience could give to his splendid argument and declamation. But the Christian orator had to combat with, and to triumph over everything that seemed inharmonious with the theme, and opposed to the accomplishment of its object, and what must have been the magic power of that elocution which could blind the eyes of an audience to the sights, and deafen their ears to the sound so near them, and produce such fixedness of attention, and such power of abstraction as to leave them at liberty for those processes of thought which resulted in the conversion of hundreds to God, and to what? In a way of instrumentality shall we attribute this astonishing effect, but to the power of its wonderful oratory, combined with the simplicity and power of the truths he enforced.
This fact has stood for a century upon record, and yet we have been slow to learn from it the lessons which it is adapted to teach, and among them the effect produced by a commanding method of address, in circumstances apparently the most unlikely for such a result. I am not calling upon my brethren to imitate this daring attack upon the very citadel of Satan. Even George Whitfield never, I believe, repeated it, and perhaps ought never to have attempted it. But my object is to show the power of voice and action, and the nature of pastoral earnestness. We shall now contemplate another instance of the power of oratory, which, if it be less grand and commanding in itself, is perhaps more likely to be useful to the readers of this little work, because it is an instance brought nearer to their own times and to the level of their own circumstances. I mean, Spencer of Liverpool. In reference to this transcendent young preacher, Robert Hall remarks, quote, The writer of this deeply regrets his never having had an opportunity of witnessing his extraordinary powers. But from all he has heard from the best judges, he can entertain no doubt that his talents in the pulpit were unrivaled, and that had his life been spared, he would in all probability have carried the art of preaching to a greater perfection than it ever attained. At least in England, his eloquence appears to have been of the purest stamp, effective, non-ostentatious, consisting less than the preponderance of any one quality requisite to form a public speaker than in an exquisite combination of them all, whence resulted an extraordinary power of impression, which was greatly aided by a natural and majestic elocution, end quote. In his last expression, Robert Hall has disclosed much of the secret of Spencer's popularity and usefulness, and natural and majestic elocution, this setting forth with simple and unaffected earnestness of manner, the grand doctrines of evangelical truth, accompanied as it was with a most engaging countenance and form, constituted the charm and led to the success of this most captivating preacher of modern times. Let the young ministers of this age read his life and remains as published by his gifted successor, Dr. Raffles, and also his posthumous sermons, which have been since given to the world, and they will find nothing whatever of an extraordinary genius, no lofty eloquence in the usual acceptance of that term, no profound thought, no splendid imagery or diction, but they will meet at every step with the doctrine of Christ crucified, set forth with manly vigor, in plain perspicuous language, the utterances of a mind well instructed in the way of salvation, and of a heart overflowing with benevolence for the good of his fellow creatures. To what, then, shall we attribute, under God, his success, not only in filling the large town in which he lived, and the nation at large with his fame, but what was infinitely more important in itself, and far more eagerly coveted by him, in bringing so many souls to Christ. There is but one answer to be given to this, and that is, it was the fascination of its manner. He was in earnest. The stream of his simple, elegant, though by no means profound thought, flowed forth with a resistless impetuosity that carried away his hearers before it. There is scarcely any more instructive lesson to be learned, or any more important inference to be drawn from the short life of this young minister, so mysteriously cut off at the very commencement of his career, 
than a vast consequence of an animated manner of preaching the gospel. Footnote. I was as curious as you may be who was Thomas Spencer, so I went to books.google.com and looked up Thomas Raffles, comma, Thomas Spencer and found his biography. But I continue, I may here advert to another individual who was considered to be in a particular way one of the most impressive preachers of his time, the late Mr. Toller of Kettering. He also no doubt owed much of the effect which his sermons produced to his mode of address, and their effect proves that vehemence, boisterousness, and vociferation are not essential to earnestness and deep impression, for nothing can be more calm and subdued, though nothing more solemnly commanding, than his whole demeanor in the pulpit. His printed sermons are characterized by strength of thought, uttered in language of great perspicuity, though not irradiated by any coruscations of brilliant genius. A noble simplicity and amiable grandeur, says Robert Hall, with whom he lived on terms of most intimate friendship, were the distinguishing features of his eloquence, end quote. There was an irresistible charm in his manner, which threw a spell over all his hearers, and fascinated alike the learned and illiterate. He made the latter to understand and the former to feel. I never heard him but once, but it was a memorable occasion, the ordination of Mr. Robertson of Stretton, at which Robert Hall delivered the admirable charge afterwards published under the title of The Difficulties and Encouragements of the Christian Minister. It is impossible ever to forget, and equally so to describe, the effect produced by two such preachers on such an occasion. It was the first time I ever heard either of them, and alas that I ever heard Mr. Toller, and it almost seemed as if I had never heard preaching before. Both were excited, no doubt, and stimulated to do their best, not only by the occasion, but by the presence of each other. The terms employed by Mr. Toller's biographer were the most appropriate that could be selected to describe his style and manner, simplicity and amiable grandeur. It was impossible not to listen. Either I nor ear played truant for a moment while he was preaching. His delivery was not the rushing torrent of impassioned eloquence which gushed afterwards from the lips of his distinguished fellow laborer, but the majestic, silent flow of a noble river. In the power of awakening pathetic emotions, says Robert Hall in his memoir, he has excelled any preacher it has been my lot to hear. Often have I seen a whole congregation melted under him like wax before the sun. My own feelings on more than one occasion of approach to an overpowering agitation. The effect was produced apparently with perfect ease. No elaborate preparation. No peculiar vehemence or intensity of tones. No artful accumulation of pathetic images led the way. The mind was captivated and subdued. It hardly knew how, though it will not be imagined that this triumph of popular eloquence could be habitual, much less constant. It may be safely affirmed that a large proportion of Mr. Toller's discourses afforded some indications of these powers. The following is Robert Hall's description of the effect of two sermons preached in his hearing by this eminent man. Quote, it was about this period in 1796 that my acquaintance with him commenced. 
I had known him previously and occasionally heard him, but it was at a season when I was not qualified to form a correct estimate of his talents at the time referred to. We were engaged to preach a double lecture, and never shall I forget the surprise and pleasure with which I listened to an expository discourse from First Peter 2. The richness, the unction, the simple majesty which pervaded his address produced a sensation which I never felt before. It gave me a new view of the Christian ministry, but the effect, powerful as it was, was not to be compared with that which I experienced on hearing him preach later at Bedford. The text which he selected was peculiarly solemn and impressive. His discourse was founded on Second Peter 1, verses 13 to 15. Yes, I think it proper, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, and so on. The effect of this discourse on the audience was such as I have never witnessed before or since. It was undoubtedly very much aided by the peculiar circumstances of the speaker, who was judged to be far advanced in a deadly illness, and who seemed to speak under the impression of its being the last time he would address his brethren on such an occasion. The aspect of the preacher, pale, emaciated, then and apparently on the verge of eternity, the simplicity and majesty of his sentiments, the sepulchral solemnity of a voice which seemed to issue from the shadows, combined with the intrinsic dignity of the subject, perfectly quelled the audience with tenderness and terror, and produced such a scene of audible weeping as was perhaps never surpassed. All other emotions were absorbed in devotional feeling. It seemed to us as though we were permitted for a short space to look into eternity, and every sublunary object vanished before the powers of the world to come. Yet there was no considerable exertion, no vehemence, no splendid imagery, no magnificent description. It was a simple declaration of truth, of truth indeed of infinite consequence, borne in upon the heart by a mind intensely alive to its reality and grandeur. Criticism was disarmed. The fear felt himself elevated to a region which criticism could not penetrate. All was powerless submission to the master spirit of the scene. It will always be considered by those who witnessed it as affording as high a specimen as can be conceived of the power of a preacher over his audience, the habitual or even frequent recurrence of which could create an epoch in the religious history of the world, quote. Another footnote. If you look at books.google.com for the works of Robert Hall, Volume 4, Page 305, you will find his life of Thomas Toller. But to continue, this description, even though some allowance should be made for the eloquence of friendship, is replete with instruction to our rising pastors. They may learn the vast importance of the manner in which a sermon is delivered, as well as the manner of which it is composed. Nor is this the only lesson nor perhaps the most valuable one to be learned from the short but precious piece of pastoral biography, for we gather what it is that, to minds of the highest order, such as Robert Hall's, constitutes the nearest approach to perfect pulpit eloquence, in which even such commanding intellects yield themselves up with willing submission, not the artificial elaboration of men intent upon producing a great sermon, 
Not the bombastic sermon or splendid imagery sought with ambitious eagerness by those who aim to shine. Not the cold abstract philosophical reasoning of an academic professor, but the simplicity and earnestness which aim to instruct the judgment, to awaken the conscience, and to affect the heart. All great minds love simplicity and detest affectation and pretense. This is especially the case with Robert Hall. His censor of the mental quality most opposed to earnestness amounted sometimes to eloquent extravagance and burlesque, and his sarcasms were not infrequently tinged with uncharitable bitterness, as his admiration of simplicity was occasionally expressed in somewhat exaggerated panegyric. The ambition of a preacher, whose aim is usefulness, might well be gratified by a remark which he once made after hearing a sermon. I should not wonder if a hundred souls were converted tonight. These are only a few out of innumerable instances which could be adduced to prove the vast importance which attaches to an effective delivery. Far greater numbers of our preachers fail for lack of this than from any other cause, and a fact is so notorious as to need no proof beyond common observation, and so impressive is to demand the attention not only of the professors, but the committees of all of our colleges. It is too generally the case that adequate culture is not bestowed upon the speaking power of our students from the beginning to the end of their course of study. There is great assiduity manifested in securing them fullness of manner, but far too little in giving them impressiveness of manner. Assistance is granted to make them scholars, philosophers, and divines, but as to becoming good speakers they are, I fear, left pretty much to themselves. No, it is not even inculcated upon them with the emphasis it should be to try to make them such. A complete system of pastoral education naturally includes great attention to elocution, and this should commence as soon as a student enters college so that by the time he is put upon the preaching list, he may have some aptitude for the management of his voice, and not have his thoughts diverted then from his matter and his object to his manner. He should by that time have acquired the habit of speaking well, so as to be able to practice it with facility and without study. The great objection to lectures on elocution is that they are apt to produce a pompous, stiff, and affected manner, but this is an abuse of the art. Its object should be to cure the vices of a bad, and to supply the lacks of a defective enunciation, and a form an easy, natural, and impressive delivery. When will preachers learn that preaching is but talking in a louder tone and with a little more emphasis of manner? Why affect a preaching or a praying tone, a method of speaking peculiar to the pulpit? A conversational manner occasionally elevated, animated, and energetic, as impassioned passages and feeling may require, is what we want. There are some men who are good talkers out of the pulpit, yet bad speakers in it. How much more acceptable would they be if they could carry their easy, natural manner of conversation with them into the sacred desk?